The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Okay, we all know that before we get started in studying God's Word, it's important that we are uh, in fellowship with the Lord, that we're filled with the Holy Spirit, and that we are prepared to take in God's Word. One of the most important facets of the spiritual life is the filling of the Holy Spirit. This we shall see in our study later this morning on in John is what's critical for the spiritual life. It was unique in the life of our Lord and His... Uh, uh, public ministry and life on the earth as he demonstrated for all times the new, new spiritual life, the unique spiritual life of the church age. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit through the use of 1 John 1, 9. So let's bow our heads together. I think we all understand what we need to do and let's just uh, have a few moments of silent prayer and then we'll open in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this beautiful day today that you have given us and the opportunity to gather together as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have been saved, those who have been uh, given all the tremendous assets that we have as uh, believer priests, uh, the unique spiritual life we have as believers in the church age, and the wonderful blessing that we have of a completed canon of Scripture that we have your completed and full will revealed to us that we may know how to live, how to live in such a way that you are glorified and that we might uh, have all of the blessings that you have for us. Now, Father, as we look at your word, pray that you would make it clear to us that we can understand these doctrines for they are important for our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Galatians chapter 2. Now, as we get further and further into the uh, depths of Galatians, what we discover is that uh, Paul has to deal with two aspects of legalism. There are really two categories to legalism. first category is soteriological legalism. Now, soteriology is one of those long words that we use in theology to describe the doctrines of salvation. It comes from the Greek word soter, which means Savior. So these are the doctrines of salvation. Second category of, of uh, legalism is sanctification legalism. Legalism related to living the spiritual life and growing to spiritual maturity. Soteriological legalism is faith plus, something in order to be saved. Sanctification legalism is faith plus something in order to grow or mature in the spiritual life. Examples of soteriological legalism are believe and repent. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, if you understand repent correctly, it's not a problem. 
But if you look the word up in the English dictionary, so all, and it has the idea of repentance meaning feeling sorry for or remorse or something like that. And uh, that's not correct. The Greek word is metanoeo, which means to change your mind, to change your attitude about something, to change your thinking about something, to think differently about. So if you want to say uh, believe and repent, if you understand that is changing your mind about who Jesus Christ is as the Son of God and Sa- Savior, then that might be correct. Uh, another example of soteriological legalism is believe and confess your sins. Uh, believe and confess your faith. This is uh, in Romans 10, 9, and 10, a passage that if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, then you will be saved. And... Uh, We'll take some time to analyze that in the future, but that passage is not dealing with um, salvation at justification. Remember, there are three stages to salvation. At phase one, we are justified. That's the technical term for what happens. And at this time, we are saved from the penalty of sin. That means we are saved from eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. However, and unfortunately, most of the time when we talk about salvation, that's what we have in mind. We say, are you saved? In other words, are you saved from eternal condemnation? However, that's not the only way the Greek word is used in the New Testament. It is also used to describe phase two salvation, Christian life salvation, which is saved from the power of sin. That is, we still have a sin nature and we have to go through the process of renewing our minds and through the, uh, with Bible doctrine, the second power option under the filling of the Holy Spirit, the first power option, applying it into our lives and we go through a growth process that has various ups and downs as we grow towards spiritual maturity. That is being saved from the power of sin. We still have a sin nature and we have to learn how to live under the filling of the Holy Spirit and not under the control of the sin nature so that we can grow towards spiritual maturity. This is phase two salvation and often there are passages like the Romans uh, 10, 9 and 10 passage, James 2, which deals with justification uh, by faith. And there it talks about, are you saved? Show me your salvation from your works. That's not talking about phase one salvation. That's talking about phase two salvation. The example there is, uh, uh, one of the examples is Abraham. And Abraham was already saved justification phase one in terms of the incident and the illustration used in James chapter 2. So what causes people to get confused here is they think that every time the Bible talks about salvation, it's talking about phase one salvation. But many times the Bible, when it uses the word salvation, it's talking about phase two salvation. And in fact, in the Old Testament, only 7% of the time when it talks about salvation is it talking about phase one salvation. 93% of the time it's talking about either physical deliverance from enemies, from external enemies, or it's talking about uh, the spiritual life. The majority is talking about being saved from physical enemies. And then phase three salvation is glorification when we're absent from the body face to face with the Lord and we are freed or saved from the presence 
of sin. We no longer have a sin nature in our resurrected bodies. So it's very important when you come to these passages that you distinguish what, from the context, what kind of salvation is in view. Another example of uh, soteriological legalism is believe and surrender your life. The old uh, Keswick view or holiness uh, doctrines, believe and be baptized, is very common with um, uh, a number of groups. Nowhere in the scripture does it put baptism as a condition for salvation. Uh, believe and be circumcised, which is the issue that we discover here in Galatians chapter 2. Believe and keep the Mosaic Law, which was also a problem that the Galatian church faced. Uh, believe and join the uh, church. Believe and partake of the sacraments. Uh, and a couple of other screwy ways of presenting the gospel are invite Jesus into your heart or believe and make Jesus Lord of your life. These have nothing to do with salvation. In fact, if belief for salvation includes anything other than faith alone in Christ alone, then a person would not be saved by going back too far. If it includes anything other than faith alone in Christ alone, then a person would not be saved by reading the Gospel of John. And at the end of John, the writer of John says, but these signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through His name. So if adding something to faith is necessary for salvation, then you wouldn't find it anywhere in the Gospel of John and nobody could be saved. So you have to be careful to make sure that the Gospel is always faith alone and Christ alone. Faith is the absence of works. Faith is non-meritorious in itself. There is only one kind of faith. Anyone can exercise faith irregardless of, of race or gender or anything else. Faith relates to a, a common operation we engage in every single day. We have faith that when we go out to the car, it's going to start this morning. And in spite of the fact that I'm running late, when I put the key in the ignition and turn it, it's going to crank. Now, sometimes that doesn't happen, but we believe it's going to happen. It's the same kind of faith that saves us. What is different is the object of our faith. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ and all the merit resides in Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for every single sin in human history on the cross. So faith is in Christ alone and that is what secures salvation. It is not the faith that secures the salvation. It is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that secures the salvation for we are saved through faith. It is merely the means by which we appropriate the work of of Jesus Christ. Sanctification legalism adds works to, uh, uh, for spiritual life it's, and confuses, often confuses morality with spirituality. That somehow adherence to some code of ethics or code of conduct is what gives us approval from God and we then receive a blessing from God and spiritual growth. And that's just the opposite of what Scripture teaches. What Scripture teaches is that in order to grow spiritually, first of all, you have to learn doctrine. It goes into the soul, to the left lobe of the soul, where it is gnosis or academic knowledge. Then you believe it, and under the filling of the Holy Spirit, it is transferred to the right lobe of the soul, where it becomes epinosis or 
application knowledge, epinosis doctrine, which is stored in the soul, ready for application under the filling of the Holy Spirit. And then it is a result of that that we apply it into our lives and spiritual growth takes place. Now, as a result of spiritual growth, a number of other things happen. There's production. There's the use of our spiritual gifts. Prayer. Giving. Witnessing. All of these are products of our spiritual growth. They are not causes of our spiritual growth. And that's where legalism seeps in. People think, I have to get involved, you know, prayer, spiritual gifts, uh, just the discipline of the spiritual life. But what is discipline is self-control. That's a fruit of the Spirit. That's a consequence of spiritual growth. It is not what produces spiritual growth. And so often what happens in Christianity is people put the cart before the horse thinking that if I go out and I do this, I engage in prayer, witnessing, giving, and all of this, that somehow that is what produces spiritual growth. What produces spiritual growth is what goes on in your mind. Renew your mind, put doctrine into your mind, and then you begin to grow as you apply that in every area of your life. And the consequence of that is the production, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, operation of spiritual gifts. We fulfill our roles as priests and ambassadors in these various activities. And that is uh, a consequence of our, of our spiritual growth. It is not the cause of our spiritual growth. But people get this confused. They think that they have spirituality by fasting. Uh, the Pentecostals want to keep waiting on the Holy Spirit or tarrying. That was the old word in the, in the King James Version when Jesus told the disciples to tarry in Jerusalem meaning to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Well, the command number one was addressed only to the 11 disciples to await in Jerusalem. And once the Holy Spirit came, they were to stop waiting and to move out. And that was not a command to uh, Christians across the board to tarry for the Holy Spirit. Uh, spirituality by praying, spirituality by following various taboos, spirituality through asceticism, giving up somehow if I give up everything in my life that I really enjoy, that God's going to bless me and be really impressed by what a wonderful person I am, and then He's going to bless me. Spirituality by discipline. And all of it relates to confusing morality with spirituality. Morality is for everyone. Morality is a system of ethics, right and wrong, based on the establishment codes of the Old Testament and is for believers and unbelievers. But remember, the spirit, anything that an unbeliever can do is not part of the spiritual life. This is critical. Anything that an unbeliever can do is not part of the spiritual life. And the trouble is, there are a lot of unbelievers out there who are doing all kinds of good deeds. They're engaged in prayer. They're giving up for God. They're going through all kinds of things. Meditation, discipline, all of these things. And it has nothing to do with the spiritual life. The spiritual life is the unique uh, life of the believer, uh, his rapport with God the Father, based on the filling of the Holy Spirit and walking by means of the Holy Spirit so that it is a life that is produced by the Holy Spirit in us. We can imitate it through the sin nature. The sin nature has an area of strength which produces human good. And so often this morality is confused and thought of as spirituality. Now this is the problem that Paul's running into in Galatians with these churches that he and... Uh, Barnabas and uh, John Mark had founded. Uh, 
are now being have now been led astray into legalism. And so he is defending his position as uh, an apostle and what he taught. This is what we saw in the introduction in uh, verses 1 through 10. The two main ideas were the gospel is justification by faith alone and that Paul's gospel came directly from the Lord Jesus Christ and not from men and he has apostolic authority. He returns to that theme at the beginning of uh, this section that we're studying now back in 111. Uh, he laid down the proposition that he received the gospel, the good news, uh, which he preached directly from God and not from men. That was in 11 and 12. And then, starting in verse 13 down to the end of chapter 2, Paul is giving various lines of evidence to support this claim to authority from God, not men. So he says, look, there's objective evidence here. This isn't just something subjective. This isn't just something that happened to me on the road to Damascus that nobody else I had anything to do with, but there is evidence to support my claim that I have authority directly from God. So he's going to outline that evidence. Evidence number one was evidence from his life prior to conversion in verses 13 through 14, where he persecuted Christianity, hated Christians, and he took it upon himself to personally eradicate every believer he could find from the face of the earth. Secondly, he gave uh, the evidence related to his conversion, that on the road to Damascus, a bright light appeared to him. The Lord Jesus Christ was in that light and spoke to him and gave him a direct commission to be the gospel, um, to be the apostle to the Gentiles and to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He, um, he heard specifically what the Lord Jesus Christ said. Those with him did not hear specifically what the Lord Jesus Christ said, but they heard the voice. They knew something happened. So it's objective. It is not subjective. Uh, Third, he gave evidence from his first visit to Jerusalem some three years later. After he was saved, he went to Damascus. And from Damascus, he went out into Arabia, rethought things for probably a few weeks. And then he he conducted a ministry both to Jews and to the Gentile Nabataeans in Damascus during those three years. Uh, Created quite a stir. Everybody got mad at him. The Jews were mad at him. The Gentiles were mad at him. And he had to leave town by being uh, lowered by a rope in a basket. over the wall and escape in the dead of night. And he went down, uh, then he went down to Jerusalem, had a short visit there, he was there for um, about two weeks and, and uh, visited with uh, Peter and also James. And there uh, he had some ministry there among the Jews and apparently left everything in an uproar. And we saw that wonderful passage at the end of Acts chapter, uh, I think it was in the end of Acts chapter 10 or Acts chapter 9 that he left and all the People in Jerusalem had peace after Paul left. So then he disappears from history for 14 years. That's where we find ourselves in chapter 2. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. Now remember, there are no chapter divisions or verse divisions in the original Greek New Testament. As they wrote it, they just wrote a letter, just like you and I write letters. We don't divide our letters up into chapters, chapter and verse. So these chapters were added later. They were added in the early Middle Ages in order to help find certain segments of Scripture. And then later the verse editions were added. And um, a man by the name of Robert Stevens added them in, I think, the 16th century while he was riding on horseback from Paris to Lyon, France. 
So that was quite a task as he sat up there on his horse, and I think the horse hit a few holes in the road and his pen missed because he really put some verse divisions in some strange places. But you have to think as you read through this, you have to think of it as a continuity here. He starts off, um, he's just giving, giving information. and He talks about his salvation back in uh, 15 through 17. Then in 18 he says, Then, three years later I went up to Jerusalem. And in verse 22, Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And then, two, one, Then after an interval of 14 years. So he's giving us a precise chronology. And the focus of this precise chronology is to establish the fact that he had very little contact with the apostles in Jerusalem. So that his, he's establishing the principle that his authority derives directly from what occurred on the Damascus Road and God's personal revelation to him. So when we think about this, we have to be thinking somewhat about our chronology of Paul's life. So he has um, his salvation occurred... Let's just say, uh, we don't know the dates precisely. There's a lot of issues involved in chronology. In fact, there are a number of things related to the chronology of this period that I hope to have time to study out at some time. But, but at this point, I don't think there's, they're really set in, in concrete. Uh, let's just say he was saved around, around uh, 35, probably thir- maybe as early as, as uh, 34. He spends... Um, three years in Damascus, and then there's a 14-year gap. So this is some 17 years later, so this would be around 50 to 51. Now, see, this is one of the chronological problems that we run into here, is that it seems like from, the, from what we know of, of Acts and his journeys that he's already on his first missionary journey by then. So I think that some of these dates need to be questioned, but this gives you a rough rough chronology, that 14 years later, and it's clear that it's 14 years later after, uh, uh, after the first Jerusalem visit, just from the Greek grammar. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. And it d- indicates that this is his very next visit to Jerusalem. He hasn't been there at all during this 14-year period. So to understand some of these dynamics and just to put it together with... Uh, with what goes on in Acts, let's hold our place here and turn back to Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now, during this 14-year period, this was sort of, uh, we might say, Paul's wilderness time. Often God takes us and puts uh, people in the ministry uh, out somewhere where they're isolated to give them time to grow to spiritual maturity, to learn and understand doctrine, and to keep them out of, the, out of public eyesight. He did that with Moses for 40 years when he was out in the wilderness of Midia, where he was with the sheep, and there he was, he was learning doctrine and growing to spiritual maturity as God prepared him for his eventual ministry. So this 14-year period is Paul's time of preparation. He was actively involved in ministry. He apparently had a reputation that was uh, uh, going around because Barnabas knew of him and knew what he was doing so that when Barnabas needed somebody, he headed to uh, Tarsus to get uh, the Apostle Paul to come with him. Acts chapter uh, 11, verse 19. Now, this takes place at a critical time in the church, so in early church, so we need to have a little background. First of all, back in Acts 10, Peter has a vision. 
from God related to uh, inclusion of the Gentiles into the church, that there would not be any difference, distinction between Jew and Gentile. In other words, up to that point, most of the, the church was Jewish, and they were still observing all of the, uh, all of the feasts and all of the uh, various rituals associated with Judaism. And their thought was that if a Gentile is going to be saved, then he needs to come over and participate in all the, all the Jewish rites and uh, rituals and become a proselyte to Judaism. In fact, uh, Peter is still following the Mosaic Law and very concerned. Might just turn back. Let's just look at this a minute to get an idea of what's going on here. Flip back to Acts 9. This, I, th- I think this is, um, no, Acts, um, Acts 10. Acts 10 and uh, down in verse 11. Acts 10, 11. This is uh, Peter's vision. And he beheld, the, he beheld the sky opened up and a certain object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground, And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him saying, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. Now notice Peter's reaction. What we see here in this vision is the big tablecloth comes down with all these animals on it. There are, according to the Mosaic Law, clean and unclean animals. There's food there that he was that he was allowed to eat, and food there that he was prohibited to eat according to the Mosaic Law. So Peter's still following the Mosaic Law, and when the voice says, kill and eat, he says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. I can't eat any of this because it's not, it's not according to the Mosaic Law. Now, what's the, one of the problems here, one of the little sidelines here, is you always get some fundy, come along in Christianity today and say, well, we have to go back and follow the Mosaic Law's dietary codes because that's really a great system of eating. You know, they just don't pay attention to what the New Testament is saying. Uh, they, they come along and they, they make these claims because they say, well, the difference between clean and unclean, for example, you couldn't eat shellfish. Now, personally, I would hate to live under the Mosaic Code because I love shellfish. And, or, or pork. And they'd say, well, this was all because of uh, hygiene and sanitary conditions, and so the Lord was protecting uh, the Israelites from all this bad hygiene and, and uh, you know, poorly cooked pork or, or shellfish or catfish or whatever. And the dietary, I mean, the concept of hygiene and cooking and sanitary cooking hadn't changed any by, what would this be, 33, B, 33 A.D., they did not discover at this time that it was important to cook pork to a certain temperature in order to kill the germs related to uh, certain diseases. Same thing related to, to shellfish. The issue we discover here in chapter 10 is that the, the, the dietary laws were all designed to teach principles about salvation and about the spiritual life. Primarily, what these dietary laws dealt with was that, that you couldn't eat animals that were scavengers, that ate dead things. Why? God is saying something about death. Death is the result of sin, so you want to separate yourself from sin. That was the point of the dietary laws. It was teaching certain, it was just a visual training aid to teach certain things about doctrine. So now that we're in the church age, this is no, lo- no longer applies because Christ has come and Christ is the end of the law. 
So Peter is told, you can eat anything. This is verse 15. What God has cleansed, no longer consider holy. Verse 16 tells us how stubborn Peter is. And this happened three times. Peter just wouldn't take it the first time. He had to be told three times that all this food was clean. In other words, the the point is now being made that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile in the church age. So Peter then goes to uh, Cornelius, uh, witnesses to Cornelius, and Cornelius and his household are saved. And then he comes back to Jerusalem and everybody gets upset because Peter was out there having fellowship with the Gentiles and eating and eating their food, which wasn't according to Mosaic law. Now, all of this is important to understand the background of what we're going to cover in Galatians chapter 2 because the whole issue in Galatians chapter 2, both with regard to salvation and regard to the spiritual life, has to do with the role of the Mosaic Law in terms of being a believer. So what happened? That's that's the background in, for Acts chapter 11. Just before that, Peter comes back, gives a report to the Jerusalem church, and everybody accepts it and concludes at the end of verse 18. Well, then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. That is the change of mind. So then the Gentiles are going to participate in the blessing of salvation from Jesus Christ. Then in verse 19, the scene shifts and it says to Gentiles. This is part of the transition in Acts. One of the key transitions from a Jewish-oriented church to a Gentile-oriented church. Verse 19. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch key city, Antioch of Syria, which is due north of Jerusalem, um, about 150 to 200 miles, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. They just don't get the point. They still think the gospel is Jewish-oriented. But there were, this is the contrast, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also proclaiming the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Who believed indicates that they were probably Old Testament saints who believed and they turned to the Lord. And the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. So here we're first introduced to Barnabas. Barnabas, a nickname for a man whose real name was Joseph. Barnabas means, in Aramaic, means son of encouragement and tells us something about his character. Uh, we learn a little more about him in verses 23 and 24. Then when he had come and witnessed the grace of God, that is, he saw what God was doing among the Gentiles in Antioch, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So that means he's spiritually mature. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord, and the church was growing so fast, he had to do something about it. In verse 25, he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. So what's happening here in terms of background is that Barnabas is sent up to Antioch. Now, what do we know about Barnabas? Well, first of all, Barnabas was Jewish, but he was a Hellenized Jew. He was a native of Cyprus, and he was a Levite, in terms of his tribe, and he was fairly wealthy. He was a native of Cyprus, a Levite, and fairly wealthy. Probably a, a, a 
businessman, and that's why he was in, spent some time in Jerusalem where he heard the gospel. Secondly, we know that he possessed a certain amount of land, and he disposed of that land for the benefit of the Christian community. He sold it, and he laid the money at the apostles' feet, Acts 4, 36-37. So there we learn something about his character. As he's matured in the Lord, he's generous, he's very kind, and he's grace-oriented. He understands that the issue is not who he is or what he is. He understands that all that he has in life is given to him by the Lord, and he is using that for the Lord's purposes. So he sells his land and gives the money to the apostles so that they can use it to distribute among the poor in Jerusalem at that time. The third thing we learn about him is that when Paul first showed up in Jerusalem, after his three years in Damascus, and he's got this horrible reputation uh, as a persecutor of the church, that the only person who initially would go to Paul was Barnabas. It tells us something about his character. We see it in relation to to, uh, John Mark later on, who, uh, when Paul got fed up with John Mark's uh, silliness and juvenile problems and not being willing to handle the rigors of travel, that Barnabas was willing to put up with it uh, to to continue to work with, uh, with John Mark and when Paul wanted to leave him behind. So Paul left Mark behind after the first missionary journey, and then Barnabas went on and uh, partnered with uh, John Mark for a while. So we learn something about Barnabas. He relates to people. He sees their potential. He wants to work with them. He's not going to let things get in the way of his uh, ministry with individuals. So when Paul first made his uh, appearance in Jerusalem, Barnabas is the one who came to him, brought him to the apostles, and attested to his sincerity. That's in Acts 9.27. Uh, point number four, when what we see here in this verse uh, in Acts 11 is that when word came to Jerusalem of the establishment of the church in Antioch, that it was Barnabas who was sent up there to evaluate the situation, and um, he was the one who began to minister there. And point number five, Barnabas then needed help, so he went to Tarsus to find Saul, who would return with him, the Apostle Paul, and work at the church of Antioch for one year. This is in uh, verse 26. And there we also learn that it was at Antioch where believers were first called Christians. They were identified with Jesus Christ in their name, and they were called those who are of Christ, or Christians, in Antioch. Now, about this time, a prophet, one Agabus, comes up to uh, Antioch, from Jerusalem, and he gives a prophecy there's going to be a major famine in Jerusalem. Now, this is under, we know from secular history that this is during the reign of Claudius, who was the emperor in Rome at this time, and there were a number of famines throughout the Middle East at this time, and, and there were some very serious famines that affected uh, uh, Israel. And I think that all of this was a warning of God's impending judgment in 70 A.D. So there are famines and the believers in Antioch take up a collection in order to provide food and help to the poor in Jerusalem who are suffering during the famine. And they choose two men to carry that uh, sustenance back to Jerusalem. Barnabas and Paul. This is in Acts 11, 
verse 30. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas, Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Now, this is the second time Paul goes to Jerusalem in Acts. So, this meeting, this famine visit, must be the visit that Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 2. Now, the reason this is important is because in the, in the flow of events that we learn about in Acts, first Peter has the vision related to the um, Mosaic Law and the fact that the dietary laws are no longer in effect, that the Mosaic Law is no longer in effect, and that the barrier is down between Jews and Gentiles. He comes back and gives this report to the Jerusalem church, and they accept it. But they still don't quite get the point, and they're still primarily focusing on Jews and taking the gospel to Jews, and they're not really reaching out to the Gentiles, but Gentile believers are doing this and carrying on that ministry. And as a result of all of this, the issue about the relationship of Gentiles to the Mosaic Law is going to intensify. And it finally comes to a boiling point, and there's a major conference in Jerusalem that's described in Acts chapter 15, which we call the Jerusalem Council. Now, we're not going to turn there and look at that right now, But in terms of understanding Galatians 2, the issue is when Paul is confronting, goes down to Jerusalem here in Galatians 2 with Barnabas and Titus, is this the Jerusalem council in Acts 15 or is it the second visit, uh, the famine visit? And I think it's the famine visit because for a number of reasons, but essentially because the Jerusalem council uh, is going to solidify the whole issue. When you get to the end, and we'll look at this in our continued study of Galatians, but when you look at what happens at, at, at the Jerusalem Council, they come to a firm decision that it is no longer necessary in the church age to put any kind of restrictions on Gentiles in relationship to salvation or the spiritual life. Uh, Peter goes along with that. James goes along with it. Everybody is satisfied by the end of the Jerusalem Council. But in, in Galatians chapter 2, Peter and James and everybody are still very confused about the whole issue of salvation and the Mosaic Law and how that relates to Gentiles. So we must conclude, therefore, that when Paul says that he's going down to Jerusalem after 14 years, that this must be the famine visit, his second visit recorded there in Acts at the end of Acts chapter 11. And he takes with him Barnabas and also Titus. And the construction indicates that Barnabas is a friend and companion and Titus is, is, almost goes along in the role of a helper or an assistant. But he's taking Titus along because Titus is a Greek. Titus has not been circumcised. That means that, that uh, he's going to be used as a test case with the apostles in Jerusalem in order to evaluate Paul's gospel and what he has been teaching. So he's going to take Titus along as a test case, and if everybody gets upset at Titus because he hasn't been circumcised, then we're going to have some major problems and a major theological uh, division is going to occur. And Paul wants to deal with this in private first to make sure there are no problems. So in verse 2, we get Paul's perspective that not only was he going down because of, of uh, the prophecy of Agabus, uh, related to the famine, but also because God had given him a personal revelation related to his need to go down there and uh, start working through this uh, legalistic problem with the church and with the leaders in the church in Jerusalem. 
And it was because of a revelation that I went up, that is, he went up to Jerusalem. Remember I said last week that in the way the Jews talk, Jerusalem is elevated. So you always go up to Jerusalem. Even if it's south, you're going up to Jerusalem and you go down when you go away from Jerusalem. So he went up to Jerusalem and he submitted to them the gospel, the good news which I preach. And I notice the verb here. He says, I submitted, and this is an aorist tense, which indicates past action. And then he says, the gospel which I preach, which is a present tense. It's a present active indicative, which indicates that Paul is saying, the gospel which I am still preaching. There's been no change. What I submitted to them then is the same gospel I continue to preach among the Gentiles today. But I did so in private. See, there's a place for public confrontation, which we'll see later on in this chapter. And there's a place for private confrontation. So when Peter goes down, he wants to sit down with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem in privacy to make sure there's no difference between what he's teaching and what they're teaching. So he deals with it in private. There's not going to be any public embarrassment, any public confrontation. We just want to make sure we're all uh, saying the same thing. I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Now, Paul is not saying that, that I might have made a mistake. Paul's not saying, gosh, I might have been teaching the wrong gospel. What he, what he means by that I hadn't run in vain is basically that if I don't have support from Jerusalem... If I don't have the Jerusalem church behind me and we've got a division here among Christianity, then it's just going to be a real mess and, it's, and the disruption and the theological controversy that's going to come out of this is just has the potential of destroying all the work that has been accomplished so far. So that would be running in vain. And then he tells us about the test case. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. What's the point? The point is that here we had Titus with us. If the gospel was faith plus the Mosaic law, faith plus circumcision, then when we went down to Jerusalem and we had this conference with the apostles there and talked about the essence of the gospel, they would have compelled Titus to be circumcised. But he wasn't. Titus was fine the way he is. He's a believer. Circumcision is irrelevant to eternal salvation. And then we have a contrast in verse 4. But it was because of false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. Now remember, as believers, we still have a sin nature. This is the sin nature. The sin nature is what enslaves us. The sin nature enslaves us in terms of personal sins from our area of weakness. The sin nature also enslaves us with regard to morality and human good from our area of strength. The sin nature is motivated by lust patterns, approbation lust, power lust, money lust, revenge lust, sexual lust, social lust, chemical lust, um, inordinate ambition and inordinate competition are all lusts that we have which drive us in one of two directions. Direction number one or trend number one is towards asceticism or legalism. 
Trend number two is towards licentiousness or lasciviousness. When we let our sin nature control us, we're always going to move in one of these directions. And as long as the sin nature controls us, we are in bondage. But the Scripture teaches us that we have freedom. Turn with me, hold your place there, and just flip over to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Freedom from what? Freedom from, uh, freedom from obedience to God? Is that what it is? We can do anything we want to? No, that's licentiousness. What are we free from? Free from the Mosaic Law? Yes, we are free from the Mosaic Law, but that's not what this is talking about. What are we free from? We're free from the power of the sin nature. We are born, we are bond slaves to unrighteousness, according to Romans chapter 6. And at the point of salvation, remember, phase 1, we are saved from the penalty of sin. And in phase 2, as we grow, as we learn doctrine, apply it in our lives, and pursue spiritual maturity, we are freed from the power of the sin nature. That is our freedom in Christ. That is our liberty. It is, it is based on grace. It is based on all the grace provisions that God has given us, which we have neither earned or deserved. And it is not based upon some kind of legalism. Legalism means that God blesses us on the basis of what we do. And and Paul is saying that this is what the, the message of the false brethren. They're saying that if we do something, if you go out and you engage in a ritual, and the ritual in this case is the removal of the dead foreskin from the male... In circumcision, that if you engage in that because it's a ritual prescribed or prescribed in the uh, Mosaic law, that you will uh, then gain God's approval. So it is sanctification uh, by, or, or in some cases uh, sanctification, in other cases uh, salvation by means of works. You do something, man does something, and God is supposed to bless it. That's the that's the emphasis, and that's bondage. Paul says that's bondage to the Mosaic Law and it's bondage to the sin nature. These false brethren are sneaking in. Now, there's an important thing to, to note here is that false brethren are always in self-deception. They're, all, they're motivated by arrogance and one of the major uh, attributes of arrogance is self-deception. So, they don't see... Their error. They're committed to it. They believe they're right. They believe they're biblical. False brethren like this can give you a host of Bible references to demonstrate that they're right. So it's very hard sometimes to deal with people like this. Sometimes it's better just to separate yourself from them because you're never going to convince them otherwise. They are committed to a false system. Their error. They, they bought into a system of arrogance and it, it, it builds up their own ego to think that they're doing all of these things to impress God. So these false brethren have uh, had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, the freedom that w- we have in Christ Jesus. This is one of 40 different things that God gives every single believer at the moment of salvation, and that is true freedom in Christ. The only place that we really have true freedom is with regard to our spiritual life. 
despite our liberty which we have in Christ in order to bring us into bondage. Legalism then is to take us right back into bondage, into slavery. Slavery to some human system of good works, morality, some code of conduct. But Paul contrasts this in verse 5, but we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour. This is an idiom, much like we would say, we didn't yield for one minute. We didn't pay attention to them for even one minute. We did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. The point here is his devote, Paul's devotion and adherence to the gospel in the face of false brethren. So the situation in Jerusalem is that there are false brethren who have already gotten into the church at Jerusalem. It's, it's a mess. James and John and Peter are the leaders of the church in Jerusalem and they haven't uh, been holding the line against legalism. Uh, they're confused about the whole issue of the relationship of Gentile believers and Jewish believers in this new church age and their relationship to the Mosaic Law and what role, if any, the Mosaic Law has in this new dispensation. Paul, though, is very clear. He understands the issue that in the church age there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. It's not an issue. One of the things that irritates me just a little bit, and I've run into this since my days in seminary when I first uh, came across some of the uh, Jewish evangelism groups, is that there seems to be something special that people attribute to a Jew that accepts Christ as Savior. That's not what the New Testament teaches. The New Testament teaches that there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. In other words, it is irrelevant now in this age about racial or ethnic distinctions. If you're born a Jew by race and you trust Christ as your Savior, from that point on, there is no distinction between you and a Gentile. Period. You have all the same assets and privileges that a Gentile has. And as a matter of fact, when, you come in, when we come into the Messianic Kingdom, in the Millennial Kingdom, every Jew in this age that trusts Christ as their Savior is going to rule and reign with the church. They're not going to have anything to do with the promises that are given to Israel. Because in the church age, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. So these issues are only relevant insofar as witnessing an evangelism to a Jew because of their backgrounds and their knowledge and their respect for the Old Testament Scriptures, it gives us an opportunity to go to them and show from the Old Testament how Jesus Christ fulfills the prophecies of the Messiah. But that's it. Talk about Jews now being saved and something special there, and you have Messianic congregations around uh, Messianic Jews and all of this, I think, violates the basic principle that in the church age there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. And what do they do? They continue with a lot of their uh, signs and a lot of their dress and various other trappings of Judaism, not for sanctification or for salvation, but just as, as part of their background, but it makes a distinction between uh, Jew and Gentile. Paul understood this very, very clearly when no one else did. So in verse 6 we find, but from those who were of high reputation. Now he's not being sarcastic here. I don't think he's being sarcastic at all. 
He has a good working relationship with Peter, James, and John at this point. He's not ridiculing them. There's no uh, facetiousness going on here. He is saying they do have a high reputation. These are the leaders of the church. But then he says, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. In other words, I wasn't, my, my apostleship came directly from Jesus Christ. It's on the same level as Peter, James, and John. That means I'm not going to show them any deference. If they were wrong, I'm going to tell them. In fact, we're going to see him just blast Peter in the second half of this chapter. He doesn't rely on the fact that just because they're Peter, James, and John, they would be right and I would be wrong just by virtue of the fact that they happen to spend three years with the, with the Lord during his public ministry. It makes a point of that God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. In other words, they didn't change the gospel. I came to them with what I had been proclaiming. Back in verse 2, I submitted to them the gospel. Did they change it? No. Did they add anything to it? No. Did they take anything away from it? No. Those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. So what Paul is saying is he goes down there with this test case with Titus. Titus doesn't have to be circumcised. The, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem don't make any changes to his gospel. But, it, but on the contrary, verse 7, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, and there's a very subtle point here, he makes the point that the apostles in Jerusalem realized that God had given Paul this commission to be an apostle to the Gentiles that he had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised. Uncircumcised indicates what? Those who were Gentiles. You see, the Abrahamic covenant is a contract. A covenant is a contract. A contract between two parties. God was the party of the first part. Abraham, in Genesis 12, 1-3, was still Abram, party of the second part. Genesis 12... 1 through 3. God makes an unconditional covenant. That means it's unilateral. God says, I'm going to bless you, Abram, not on the basis of anything that you have done, but because of my plans and purposes. I'm going to bless you and make you the father of a nation. A sign of that covenant was circumcision. Every Jewish male would have the foreskin removed from his phallus. Now the point of that is that every time he has to relieve himself, he is going to be reminded that he has a personal covenant relationship with God. This is another teaching aid or training aid, and it is a sign of the unique role that God has for the Jewish race in human history. So whenever you see these terms, circumcised and uncircumcised, you know that there's a theological content behind it. For example, one of my favorite stories, because nobody ever gets it right, is when David goes to fight Goliath. Remember, David's out with the sheep, and, and his brothers are off with Saul's army, and, and they're out in the, at the, getting ready to do battle with the Philistines, and every day this huge monster comes out and challenges somebody in the 
in the uh, Jewish army to do personal hand-to-hand combat. And that was very typical. The Philistines were a part of the Greek Sea People migration throughout the uh, uh, Mediterranean world at that time. They were related to the Greeks who went to Troy. And you see the same thing happened before the city of Troy in the Trojan War. You read about that in the Iliad. And uh, so Goliath comes out and issues this challenge. Well, David is finally called out by his dad. And he says, okay, I want you to take some food up to your brothers. They, uh, they need food brought to them. They need some supplies. So you take the food to the battlefield. So David comes to the battlefield. He's giving his food to the brothers. And at that same time, out comes Goliath. And Goliath issues this great challenge. And David says, why are you going to let this uncircumcised guy say this? Well, what's the point? What that reveals is that David's the only guy around who's looking at this thing theologically. He's looking at it from divine viewpoint. He says, this guy is, has no covenant relationship with God whatsoever. We are the ones who have the covenant promises from God, including the promise that this land is ours. He has no right to it. Let's look at this thing from divine viewpoint, guys, and go kill him. Just that one word. So circumcision and uncircumcision are words that you ought to immediately think about in terms of the doctrine behind them related to the Abrahamic covenant and God's special place for, for Jews within his, his, uh, his plan. I've been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised just as Peter had been to the circumcised. So that indicates also that whether they're circumcised or uncircumcised, they both need what? They both need the gospel. Circumcision doesn't make any difference. And then we have a parenthesis in verse 8. For he, that is God, who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And this is something we, we learn from a study or analysis of Acts, is that Peter is the apostle to the Jews and Paul to the Gentiles. If you study the book of Acts, you discover that up through chapter 11, the emphasis is on Peter and the Jews. Starting in chapter 11, towards the end there where we read earlier, through the end of Acts, the emphasis is on Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. This is one of the most important parts about studying the the book of Acts, is it's a transitional book. When you begin studying Acts at the very beginning, there's no church, there's nobody indwelt with the Holy Spirit, there's nobody with any spiritual gifts, Uh, there's only 11 guys and about 150 others left in Jerusalem, everybody else ran away after Jesus was attacked, but there's a few other believers in Israel, but they're all still thinking they're under the Mosaic Law, and Peter's the leader. By the time you get to the end of Acts, there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of believers spread throughout the Roman Empire. The church is primarily Gentile as opposed to Jewish. Paul's the main figure. Peter has not been spoken of in in chapters and chapters. And we have people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. They're all part of the body of Christ, which began on uh, the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 with the uh, baptism Uh, with the Holy Spirit there. And so the church continues and is fairly well established. So what's going on in these chapters is just 
establishing the church and is not characteristic of what's going on in this chapter. In fact, what happens here is you have a large number of miracles taking place and they diminish as you go through the church or go through the uh, the chronology of Acts because once the church gets established, it's no longer necessary to go back and reestablish their credentials by means of miracles and signs and wonders. So Peter is the apostle to the Jews and Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles and the one who is working effectually in both of them is God the Father through God the Holy Spirit who sovereignly distributed the gift of apostleship to both of them. So that is recognized that Peter and Paul are both apostles with different spheres of activity. And then we come to verse 9. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Kephas and John... Kephas is Peter's Aramaic name. It means rock, same as Peter does. Uh, James and Kephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. In other words, we see here something important about fellowship. Most Christians think of fellowship as social interaction. We're going to go down, we're going to have coffee together, we're going to eat some food together, we're going to talk, we're going to go uh, to a football game together, a baseball game together, we're going to go have a party, whatever it is, that's Christian fellowship. That's not what the Bible says Christian fellowship is. Christian fellowship in the Bible is centered around the person and work of Jesus Christ. It has a spiritual dimension to it that goes beyond social interaction. Just because a bunch of believers get together and have a good time socially may have nothing to do with biblical fellowship. That's what happens here. Notice the whole context is doctrine. They've been talking about doctrine and it is fellowship based upon a unity of doctrine. Today we live in an era of ecumenicalism when people say, well, the church needs to be unified, so let's all get together. If we were just unified and all work together, then we could really accomplish a lot. So people go out and they try to unify, but at the expense of doctrine. But that's not what the Scripture says. In Philippians, uh, the issue is the unity of the faith. That's doctrine. It's not at the expense. It's always unity based on doctrine, not unity at the expense of doctrine. So when people come along and say, well, you guys are just emphasizing doctrine, and that splits people, yes, it's supposed to. That's what the New Testament teaches. Doctrine, the truth, will always divide and separate. And the issue is stick with the truth. Unity is always based on the truth of Scripture and not at the expense of of the truth of Scripture. Now that they are unified on the Gospel, they have true biblical fellowship. That with the result that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So at this point, there is a division of labor that those in Jerusalem will focus on an evangelistic ministry to the Jews and those in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas and others would focus on taking the Gospel to the Gentiles. And then the concluding verse in verse 10, they only ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. So what Paul has established in these 10 verses is that in his second journey to Jerusalem, he took with him a test case, Titus, a Gentile who was uncircumcised. This is illustrative of everybody who wants to add something to faith at salvation. Faith plus. Now, in this case, it was circumcision. Also, we could say it was the obedience to the Mosaic Law. 
Was that required by the apostles? James, uh, excuse me, John, Peter, and other leaders in the Jerusalem church? No. What was required was faith alone in Christ alone. That's the gospel. So Paul is saying in terms of evidence for his message and his authority that it was clearly his message was affirmed by those in Jerusalem and his authority was also recognized by the apostles and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem so that there was no division. However, he's going to move on in verse 11 to show that Peter just didn't get the point yet and he had to really confront Peter with the issues uh, when Peter came to Antioch. And we'll begin looking at that next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for how clear the Scriptures are with regard to the Gospel and how marvelous it is that You did everything for us. You left nothing undone that we can add nothing to salvation. We can add nothing to Your provisions for the spiritual life. That grace means that you did everything and we simply accept that. Father, we pray that uh, you might help us to understand these concepts of grace and how important it is that if we are going to grow to spiritual maturity, that we do it on the basis of grace, understanding that you're a free gift to us, all that you've given us in terms of our assets, in terms of our spirit, the spiritual provisions that we have, that we might glorify You, that we might grow to spiritual maturity. We pray these things now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.